Before we get started with today's show, I want to tell you guys about betonline.ag. The finals are upon us. Tatum, Curry, Brown, Thompson, Smart, Wiggins, Horford, Poole, Celtics, Warriors. You can bet on all of the NBA Finals action with betonline.ag, and you can get a 50% welcome bonus when you sign up using the link in the description to this episode. Bet Online, where the game starts. going on yeah let's go what is going on it's it's the return of blake jude in the middle of the dead of the nfl offseason he he took his uh his his two-week vacation as a reward for all of the draft scouting and now it is still well there's no nfl going on but welcome back blake (laughs) (laughs) yes i'm doing pretty well uh i was in cincinnati for quite a bit of that time and i'm going back again here in a couple days but um, yeah, I've been having some fun. Got to watch, you know, the Reds play some baseball games. Got to hang around a little bit and just enjoy the city for a little while. Uh, so I've, I've been doing pretty well, and I'm still, I'm still trying to recover. Um, I've, I've literally gone on like so many trips after Vegas. Like I'm just, like still trying to like recoup, basically. And I am <laughs> on the worst sleeping schedule possible right now. But aside from that, I am doing well. Yeah, staying up till 2 a.m., going to sleep till 9 a.m., whatever, whatever the case yeah. may be. I get it. <laughs> Pretty much exactly how it's been for me lately. I mean, it's cool to go back home. It's cool to have time watching the Reds, who had a winning record in the month of May. Because I said during the season that we would have like Reds updates. Because basically, ever since April, like the Reds season has just been over. Like it's just, yeah. there's, oh, there's yeah. nothing yeah. left to play for. It's just a hundred and. 30 more games that just have to be played so everyone can get paid, but like it's over for the Reds. And then the Reds had a winning record in the month of uh, in the month of May. And it took having a winning record in the month of May to get them to no longer have the worst record in baseball. It took the entire month and it took them being above 500, but they officially no longer have the worst record in baseball. Yeah. So I believe they were at 1.3 and 23, I want to say, right. Yep. I think that's what it was, something around there. So now, looking back on it now, I believe they're 17 and 31, I want to say. So that is 14 and 8 in the last basically month, which is like, you know, insane, right? For a red, for especially a Reds team that's got the lack of talent they do. It took them that just to be able to get to be 28th place right now. And that also took the Royals to have an incredibly bad. You know, month as well. Like, I mean, there's a lot of different factors that played into this for the Reds to be able to get out of last place. But I'm shocked they were honestly. I mean, this was this is a team that had, had lost all hope so early on. It felt like everyone was just moving away. Um, this was just going to be a season where we watched backups play, right? And it turns out a couple of those pro- you know backups aren't that bad. And and really, the pitching staff's been what's kind of kept this team in it. But I mean. I'm not going to get into too deep a detail for the Reds. They're still the worst team in baseball. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's still really bad. Um, my, I'm glad that you mentioned that uh, Kansas City is the worst team in baseball because 
and this is not going to be a baseball heavy podcast, I'm guessing, but like the thing that I think is funny is everyone was picking the Royals as a sleeper team this year to like, not necessarily make the playoffs, but to like maybe go 500 and like maybe take the next step or whatever it was. And it, it looked to me like the reason everyone was doing it was just because the Royals had been bad for so long is that they're like, well, they've been bad for five years. Eventually they're going to like, they have to get better. And like the Cleveland's getting worse and Detroit's still not very good. And Minnesota had a bad year. Everyone's like, they got to be good at some point. And I'm just like, uh, why <laughs> their, their team is still horrible. Why do they, why do they have to get better? And the fact that they have the worst record in baseball, I find hilarious because going through the Royals roster is like a, uh, it's like going into the, the way back machine. Cause I'm like, Oh, I remember all these people. These people used to matter four years ago. And now they all play on the shitty Royals like Andrew yeah, Benintendi right. and Michael A. Taylor and Hunter Dozier. And <laughs> I think they had um, Amir Garrett is on their team. I think now, and they had Mike minor for a while. I was like, Oh, I forgot about all these people and Kansas city's really bad. And I just want to flex that I was right about the Kansas City Royals being bad. <laughs> yeah, I mean they they've been horrible. And honestly, like I was because like it's really sad that this is what I'm like paying attention to now. But you know, I, I like to watch baseball. I want to have fun, so I want to find reasons to root for my team to win, right? So this entire like last month, I've been keeping up with the Detroit Tigers to try to see like they if they could lose, right? So the Reds could be like passing them to not be the worst team in baseball. <laughs> and of course, you know the the Tigers going on a hot streak like the moment the Reds do as well, so that doesn't happen. But um, yeah, it's the Royals of all teams to uh, to pass them up, and I, I I was very amused by that and very happy to now be the twenty eighth worst team and twenty eighth best team, excuse me, in baseball. I'm I'm very proud. Please go do something else with your time. Like, <laughs> seriously if you're if you're like scoreboard watching the tigers with the hope that your team is going to no longer be the worst in baseball please go do something else with your time (laughs) i I just i just love watching baseball and i want to find an excuse to be able to root for the team i like of course so like you know i mean I don't want to. I don't want to root for them to lose. Even even if I was a Bengals fan, like you know, wanting to lose for Joe Burrow. I mean, I I really didn't want to to you know lose to the Dolphins in that game. Even though in reality, we you know it was probably a big you know big deal. But you know, it's just it's just weird how that works. You know, I, I don't know. It's just I, I had to find something to root for and enjoy, and that's that's been what it was. I went to the uh, the Giants series this uh, this year week and. Uh, Reds looked really good in that, and I was I was quite pleased to be able to watch some finally some winning baseball after. Well, I feel like forever. Yeah, I get that. And the Giants are at least a fun team. They're not a great team, but they're at least a fun team. Um, you know how like when we when we did that, uh, it was like the the post uh, the post college football playoff podcast. And we came up with like Maroon five and five with, with oh, the yes. college football teams. I, I think the kind of like spirit we were trying to embody with that is the Kansas City Royals, because I just pulled <laughs> up the Kansas City Royals. Um, the Kansas City Royals last, let's say all of their their playoff history for the Kansas City Royals. So like they won the World Series in 1985. And then since then for Kansas City, it's missed playoffs every year through the 80s, missed playoffs every single year in the 1990s, missed the playoffs every single year in the 2000s every year. So they hadn't made the playoffs in 25 years. Then they get to 2014. They missed the playoffs for 30 years straight. Uh, go to the World Series, lose game seven. Next year, win the World Series. Year after that, don't make the playoffs. 
and they don't make the playoffs again. So in the last 40 years, the Kansas City Royals have two playoff appearances, and both of them were one game away from winning the World Series and another game within uh, like are winning the World Series. They won the World Series. and They were within one game of winning the World Series. So I, I don't know exactly who the comparison is. Maybe it is Kansas football because like Kansas football had those two years where they went to the Orange Bowl and they just have they didn't win a home conference or a road conference game since then. But I'm looking at the Royals. I'm like, this. these are the types of teams that we root for. These are the types of teams right. that I root for. It's just absolute loser. I think they're like Iowa State, actually, now that I think about it. It's like Iowa State won the Fiesta Bowl in 2021 and it was the first time in their program's entire history that they won like an equivalent of a new year's six bowl game so i'm like maybe that's who the royals are the royals are like iowa state or the types of teams that we love talking about for no reason on the podcast yeah you always like to see the teams that just haven't won in forever to get, like, get a chance to win and that, that, that those years whenever they had like lorenzo kane and they were they were looking really, really good as a, as a squad. That was those are some fun games to watch. I remember actually like, paying a lot of attention to those World Series and actually like you know rooting for them the entire time. Um, so yeah, I mean, I definitely did. I definitely did enjoy that. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's honestly it's kind of funny because like if for me personally, like I mean, I, I when I hear the Royals, I just immediately think of like the Blue Jays because the Blue Jays just feel like. You know, they have like similar uniforms. You know, I always see them mixed up. It's just easy for me to get them mixed up. But I always know the difference because I always know the, the Royals are always the bad team. And the Blue Jays are always the team that's like, you know, not great, but definitely better. Right. So, mm-hmm. I mean, like, it's not like it, it's just tell, tell, tell the difference between those two teams. It's just like, oh, it's, it's the good blue team. I got you. <laughs> like, you know, it's hilarious <laughs> because I, I always just remember the Royals being like one of the worst teams in baseball like, every single year. And it's kind of funny how we create those like different, um, I guess thoughts or like uh, ideas like this team just for, forever going to be bad. And even though we want them to be good, we know that just no matter what's going to happen, they're going to be one of the worst teams in baseball. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's pretty much the Royals at this point. I didn't realize because I thought Salvador Perez a while back was going to be a walk-in for the hall of fame. Cause he made like seven all-star teams, but he'd never finished like more than top 10 once in the MVP. So I was a little disappointed by that, but I just saw it. I was like, Oh yeah, Kansas city has been fun for, uh, they were fun for years and now they're just absolutely objectively terrible. So yeah, Royals, Royals are a team we can adopt here. The Iowa state of major league baseball. <laughs> like, yeah, I, you know, if it wasn't for the Reds also being really bad, I would be rooting for Kansas city to do better. But you know, now as a Reds fan, I, I gotta, I gotta root for them to be a little bit worse. So we're not like the laughing stock of the MLB. Right. Yeah. I mean, I'm with you on the rooting for losers thing. I love rooting for losers. The thing that I just figured out is I don't watch the games when they're losers. I just like when I, I guess I watched the Padres a lot as a kid and like I've all the teams I ever rooted for as a kid were terrible. And now I live in Sacramento, so I've adopted the Kings and it's more fun rooting for the Kings than like even rooting for the Lakers because we're all just terrible and we don't actually have to watch the games. But I guess if you're actually watching the games, I guess you want to see a good team. But I like rooting for losers. I think it's fun to have a community of losers that are all happy about being losers. Well, because because whenever they actually start winning, it's so satisfying, right? Like you, you mm-hmm. just feel, and you also and you also want to you you want to give them fans whenever they don't have fans too. You know, like I mean, part of me feels bad. It's like these guys are just you know they're getting paid millions. So at the end of the day, I mean, I, I would be happy to have their job, of course. But I mean, they're you know they're they're not having anything like 
for example, the Oakland Athletics, they're just going down there to play baseball on like a little league field. Like they, in reality, they have no fans there watching or anything like that. And that, part of me like makes it like he's upset for them for that. Like they deserve like better, you know, especially with fans and things like that. But I mean, at the end of the day, I mean, it, it is what it is. And I just think that, um, you know, it, it's always fun to root for the teams that never get to have as much of a, a fan base or um, aren't as good as the others. You know, what's funny is Oakland is the local team here in, in Sacramento. And I've heard some of those attendance numbers. And I'm like, it's, it's eerie enough that there's only like 2,500 people at some of the games. But also when it's that inside of a football stadium, like that's got to be kind of freaky. Because like that stadium holds like 100,000 people or like 80,000 people. And to only have like 2,000 or 3,000 has to be a little bit creepy. Yeah, I mean, like, it's it's almost like a family get-together, like, at that point. Like, it, there's, like, literally no one. I, I mean, I've seen the fields. Like, I mean, it's genuinely, like, everyone just sits in the main front, and that's it. Like, the rest of the stadium's completely empty. I'm assuming it's really quiet there. Like, it's it's it really is crazy to think, like, and imagine, like, how, like, empty that is. I don't, I don't, I don't even know, like, how they make up for it. Like, I mean, I'm assuming they have – I'm trying to think like how their staff and things like that. If they just have like a bunch of staff members there and like not any customers or what, like it's, it's just weird to me how that works, but yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, the I mean, way that they still make money is, is the TV deals and like revenue sharing from like the right, league. Right. Cause like MLB, it's not a total revenue sharing, but like they, they do split some of their revenues between the teams. So like Oakland, I, I can't remember exactly what the number that people said, but it's basically like the calculation in the head is like, every 100,000 people that show up to a game is like the equivalent of like $3 million. So like if you're talking about 81 games for Oakland and it's like, let's say 5,000 people a game, like they're barely making like $15 million a season from A's games specifically. And like they do concerts and other stuff at the Coliseum, but like to only have that to only have like the equivalent of Josh Donaldson's contract in season revenue is kind of funny. Yeah. I mean, that, that is, that is, that is just nuts. Like, I don't know. It, it's crazy to me. Cause I feel like if I'm, you know, I mean, I'm not an athletics fan, but if I lived around there, I mean, without, without cheap, those tickets are, and without, without a few people there are there, like, I don't see like, what's the, I, w- I wouldn't mind going at all. I would go every day if I could just to watch because I feel like that'd just be fun. I just love the ballpark energy. Like even if it is no one, I just love the scenery and everything like that to go watch around and just watch a baseball game. So, mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, it's I don't, I'm not too sure. I mean, you might know better than me, of course, since you live there. But, I mean, I'm, I'm assuming it's probably not just a big baseball place to stay at. But, like, I mean, even then, like, I feel like with how cheap the tickets are, like, what are you losing and just buying tickets and going to watch? They're like 10 bucks. Yeah. Oh, it's less in many of these cases. Um, but what I guess what's funny about it is like, so I, I don't, li- I've been to San Francisco stadium, but I haven't been to Oakland's yet. And I'd like to, before I leave here, which might not be like right now, but like before I leave, I want to go to that Coliseum. And I think the appeal to it is like on a Tuesday night, it's fine. But then you're like, when you when you pay the money for the ticket, you then are buying parking and then you're buying food at the place. So it like it ends up being more in the grand scheme of things. But yeah, if I love baseball, I'd be one of those five thousand people that's just hanging out at the athletic stadium for a game. There was a game that was on like a Wednesday against Baltimore where the tickets were literally two dollars. It was literally oh two dollar tickets to go to the game. I mean, 
I just feel like at that point, like, what do you, what, what do you, I mean, I understand that it's going to cost more money for parking and things like that. Yeah. I mean, I, I get how people don't like to sign up for that, but it's just in my eyes, like, I mean, what are you losing and just going down there and just paying for tickets just for a fun experience? Like, I mean, I feel like, I don't know. I, it's, it's crazy to me because I, I think that stadium just looks so much nicer than other stadiums. Right. Like, I mean, it's a nice stadium. Like it, it doesn't look horrible. Um, I mean, it's not of course per the best, but I mean, like yeah. it's, it's definitely not like, one of the worst and i just feel like that experience is always so much fun for people to go watch games even if your team is horrible like i mean the reds take the reds for example they i mean they're a horrible team this year they have a i would say a low average stadium but they're still getting a, a really good amount of fans to go watch that game now i'll definitely say i, I believe cincinnati is more of a baseball you know place than a lot of other teams considering cincinnati reds have such a you know a big history here but i mean i, I definitely think that at the same time you know, I don't know what's stopping a team from like, like the A's from just getting a similar fan base around. I just don't know if they just hate the, the A's that much or if it's just the fact that, you know, they have other teams that might be interested in since there's a lot of teams around the area. Or well, I'm, I'm not too sure, but it, it, it is crazy to me because, I mean, I, if, if I ever was down there or was born and raised around that area, I would just be getting tickets every day at that point. <laughs> Yeah. The the things I've learned is like, it's all a calculation of like how many things there are to do in the place that you live. So like True. the example I, I bring up is um, I went to a, an LA Kings game a while back, the hockey team in Los Angeles, and it's a 20,000 seat stadium at the Staples Center. I'm like, oh, well, they're definitely going to put 20,000 people in there because there's like 11 million people that live in Los Angeles. And it was like 7,000 people at the stadium, which is like average for hockey attendance and the, the Kings are like a, an average team this year. Like they were like, I think they lost in the first round of the playoffs, but they were like an average team. So it was like, okay, I get that. Um, I was interested in that. Cause it's like out of 11 billion people, you only got 7,000 that came to the game. And I think it's just like Los Angeles has a lot of people, but there's also a lot more shit to do in Los Angeles, even if it's in right. December. And so I think that's the calculation of like, Oakland is is kind of I mean Oakland's slowly becoming a suburb of San Francisco but like Oakland's got a lot of cool stuff to do and that stadium I mean the the A's stadium is like from an a, an older era so like Wrigley Field and Fenway Park are like historical stadiums but I I've, I've been to Wrigley I haven't been to Fenway but it's like the stadium's not exactly the nicest in the world like it's not the most like the 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 most state of the art looking nice stadium but it's like old and and historic so like it has that prestige to it that's kind of what oakland's at right now is like it's a football stadium that was built in the 1960s all of those have been torn down except for oakland's at this point like all of the old football stadiums are all gone now and except for the coliseum so I think it's just like it's a it's a historic thing. It's unique that you go watch a game at the Coliseum because it's like from a an era that doesn't really exist anymore. That was always the same thing with Qualcomm Stadium too. Is like Qualcomm Stadium in San Diego was built in the 1960s and they did no renovations for like 50 years. So it was like it was a stadium that was like made of concrete built in the 60s. So I guess it's just unique to go there and like there's other stuff to do. So depends on what your options are in terms of entertainment. Yeah. Uh, I, I really think that, uh, I mean, like if, if it was my choice, like I said, if it was my choice, I, I would try to go to every ballpark possible just to have those different experiences. And I feel mm -hmm. like the age experience would just be so unique. Like you said, just to see like, you know, the old football stadium and everything around like that. 
uh, I, I just feel like all that would be really, really cool to just to just uh, experience in, in general. And I think once, you know, once people, I think, would go down there and actually get a chance to go and like see the entire stadium and watch everything, I really do think that, um, you know, people would, would understand that it is pretty fun. So, I mean, I, I don't know. I just, I just feel bad for the A's. I feel bad for the franchise because I feel like, you know, they're not a good football, baseball team by any means, historically, of course, but they've always had some solid seasons, and there's there should be reasons to be excited about the A's. I think first in some in some cases, so it just shocks me that they don't get fans. And I mean, I'm assuming because um, you know Oakland, I guess, didn't have a great record with the with the Raiders. It just feels like Oakland isn't really the best place to host a team anymore at that point, right? So mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I feel like for at least the A's, I feel like a relocation would, would make a lot of sense, but. Uh, I mean, I'm not too sure what the details behind that are. I just think that it'd be cool to see them, uh, you know, get another chance somewhere else to be able to actually have fans go to their actual games. The Oakland A's, there's a fun story behind this. Like the Oakland A's literally have been fighting for a new stadium for over 30 years now. Like when they won the World Series in 1988, they they had started the campaign to get a new baseball stadium and they still play in the same Coliseum. They haven't gotten a new one. It's simply just because like there's there's no agreement on who's going to pay for the stadium. And now like, they're probably going to go to Las Vegas and that, you know, it's fine, but that'll be the, the move like the Raiders did and the Warriors moved over to San Francisco. And like, that was the move there, but I don't know. I guess it's just Oakland is just a unique place. It was unique that they had so many teams in the first place. And yeah, I don't know. It's just as much as Oakland doesn't have, a ton of like winning prestige as a small market team. Like they have had a pretty crazy impact on the history of baseball. Cause you could talk about those teams in the eighties with them. And then of course, Moneyball being in the two thousands, like the Oakland A's are weird in that way where they never actually matter when it cut, when push comes to shove, but like they've done better than some other teams and they at the very least were the Moneyball team. So that's what you can talk about for the next or whatever the last 20 years has been about that. And they did it a couple more times in building a winning team. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there, there definitely is like a legacy behind the, the A's, right. And there's reasons to be excited. I just, I, I've never, I, and you feel free to correct me. I mean, I, again, I, I live on the exact opposite side of America. So I really cannot like, you know, uh, I guess speak from experience or anything like that, but I have never seen nor heard an actual Oakland athletics fan. I just haven't, I don't know what it is. <laughs> I don't know if it's just, I mean, I, I'm, I'm definitely assuming no one here is an Oakland athletics fan. Obviously I get that. Like even like online or anything, like that, I just haven't seen anyone be an actual Oakland A's fan. I don't know what it is. I don't know if maybe they're just waiting for the team to finally be good. But this this feel this just feels like basically exactly what the San Diego Chargers was, but like in baseball form, right? And they might be a little bit worse <laughs> for franchise. And you so know what's interesting about that though is the Chargers for years were the largest fan base in the state of California. And it was just because there was no Los Angeles team. And so all of the teams would cannibalize each other on fan bases. Like some people would be Cowboys fans, 49ers fans, Raiders fans, Rams fans, but San Diego, everyone was a Chargers fan. And so when they put up those graphics of like, who's the biggest fan of this team in this, or who's, which state has the most of this fan, California was always the Chargers. And it was just because they had an entire city that rooted for them. And then Dean Spanos lit that all on fire and moved the team to LA. (laughs) Right. So, I mean, I don't know. Maybe, maybe it is the case that San Diego had like 
I, I just always remember, I mean, they'd have more passionate fans. I definitely knew a lot more San Diego Chargers fans, you included, than, than o- Oakland A's fans, I guess. But yeah. I, I always knew fan attendance was a problem uh, in, in both Oakland and San Diego. So uh, I just think, you know, the, the A's are running into a very similar problem now. And I mean, it doesn't help that I feel like in some places, not all places, but in some places, it feels like baseball is dying. Right. In a way, like mm-hmm. no one's really interested in baseball and in really California, unless it's the Dodgers. Right. Um, you know, it's, it's still a very popular thing in Boston, New York, places like that. Cincinnati is still big, I think. But I mean, for a lot of other places outside of that, you know, uh, when it comes to other teams, like I mean, I don't hear a lot about Minnesota fans who are, you know, a very good team this year, but no one really cares because everyone kind of knows they're going to be out in the first round of the playoffs anyways. But, <laughs> but you know, other teams like that, I mean, it's just, it's just weird that it feels like in some places baseball is just getting less and less um, you know, recogn- recognition, I guess, from other fans. Uh, and, mm-hmm. and I don't know, it just feels weird to me. It just feels like this, this, the league, the league now is dominated by the top teams, right? Like I hear so much about the Dodgers or the Yankees or the Red Sox or the Giants, like all these teams are dominating. And then it feels like the teams at the bottom are just falling into obscurity now. And even though they aren't as bad as what people may you know, bring them out to be, it feels like we're now heading into an age of baseball where it's becoming almost like a, almost like in, in the college ranked a power five and a group of five. Like we're starting to see some separation. Yeah, I, my, the version I call it is minor league baseball. And like it exists yeah. in football. There's like five to 10 teams that we think of are like always terrible in football. But it's at least in football, you have like a rotation of teams because the sport is like really random sometimes. Baseball's unique thing is one, they were the sport that doesn't, I mean, they do technically have luxury tax, which acts as a salary cap, but they don't technically have a salary cap. So like the teams that are rich, spend exorbitantly large amounts of money while other teams like can because of revenue sharing not spend money and still be profitable organizations baseball is unique in that way and baseball was the sport that was kind of the pioneer of the analytics revolution so like the astros the yankees and the Dodgers, and I guess the Cubs too, because the Cubs won the World Series in 2016, but then they messed everything up after that. But like those teams became so far ahead of everyone else that it was like the other teams were just like, well, we just simply can't compete with these teams. And I mean, I think about baseball now, like every year I go to the American League and every year at the start of the year, I'm like, okay, who, how is this going to break down in the American League? And every year I end up with, oh, it's the Astros and the Yankees. Like every year, I'm just like Astros, Yankees. Those are the two best teams. Everyone else file in afterwards. Those are the teams that are going to be there at the end. And I think, like you mentioned, Minnesota, like not having a deep playoff run makes it so that you'll go find something else to do besides root for the twins. Cause like the twins haven't won a playoff game since 2002, even though they've been to the playoffs like six times since then and had hall of famer Joe Maurer for like 15 years. But like a deep playoff run is a thing that really like builds a city around. Like um, the example I think of now is like, 
<laughs> yeah, the Royals were the Royals for two years. They had a, it was a baseball town, and then the cheat, the greatest dynasty of the last ten years happened to be in Kansas City. It was like, all right, whatever. <laughs> we're a football town now. <laughs> it's like the Chiefs were terrible for for two decades, and the Royals were also terrible for two decades, and that was that was it. Now they get the Chiefs, but like um, Tampa Bay, Tampa Bay is a legitimate hockey town, and that's really right. weird because. Tampa Bay is in the middle of Florida and Tampa Bay, like their baseball team has been pretty good, but no one goes to the games. Tampa Bay legitimately is a hockey town because that hockey team has been really, really good for a decade. And now they've won back-to-back Stanley cup finals. And like, you can go up and down the streets of Tampa and they'll just be like lightning, 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 lightning. And it's really interesting how that transformation happens. But yeah, baseball, Baseball is losing more teams than they are gaining. So like Houston went from a football city to a baseball city, thanks to what the Astros have done over the last like five years. And like, I guess I'm not boots on the ground in Houston. So like, I don't know exactly how the fandom works in Houston, but like people I've met people from Houston who like, don't really care about sports, but they care about the Astros. And like, that's an interesting thing where like, Baseball didn't matter for all these years. They literally during the tanking years in Houston. I love the stats so much. In 2013, Houston had a 0.0 television rating on one of their baseball broadcasts. Literally had like no people registering watching a Houston Astros game. And now they like yep. the Astros are really good and they sell out every game and they're a baseball team. Right. So I think just Baseball's had the same teams winning for six years now and all the other fan bases. You lose a generation when your team is terrible for a long time. Cause as much as we talk about like analytics and trades and social media stuff, like the thing that builds fandom for sports teams more than anything else still is having deep winning seasons, like having a really good team that can win a championship does rally non-sports fans around that because it's like a regional pride thing i mean it happened with the bengals this year like everyone in cincinnati was talking about the bengals and that probably wasn't the case even when they were winning like five straight division titles yeah um i mean you know i definitely think the the idea of the bengals finally being the super bowl was a whole nother level of like excitement among people like i mean even even people around here, like everyone knew I was a big Bengals fan. Everyone was talking to me about the Bengals all of a sudden. I'm like, I, I've never heard you talk about them before. Like, why are you talking about them now? Like, like you know them, right? Like, I mean, out of nowhere, it just kind of came up, right? So I do agree with you. I think a lot of the more casual people who really don't watch football, they hear, oh, Cincinnati's in the playoffs. Oh, I, I live close there. I'm going to be a Cincinnati Bengals fan now. And I feel like a lot of uh, teams are like that, right? Uh, and, you know, the Houston Astros moving from the NL to the AL to go into being that the easier division, not in the NL Central anymore, I think it was a very smart decision on their part because, of course, they start winning. They get some really, really good players in the team to build around. They end up having a very, very good, successful team, like you said. They have deep playoff runs. And now, like you said, they're one of the more successful franchises in baseball right now because they're able to have so much money uh, saved up to be able to sign other big names to create super teams, right? Uh, and, and I think overall that has really helped them in, in the long run. So it, it, t- it tells me that it's not impossible for other teams to come back and do this. If you get a good set of talent to work around, if you get some really good prospects to build around and you have some success to be in the playoffs, if you get lucky and, and catch lightning in a bottle at one point, then there is a chance that all of a sudden, you know, you, you have enough money, you have enough cap to be able to go out and, and sign a lot of different players and have a very, very successful baseball team. So it's not impossible for that to happen, but it, 
it feels like at this point now, compared to the NBA and NFL, which give you a lot of different ways to be able to create balance among the leagues, for, for baseball, it's so much harder, right? Because, I mean, you, you have to have the exact right amount of players for a certain price to be able to have a very, very good baseball team and upset these insane super teams who have all-stars all across their lineup. And then just after that is whenever you're going to be able to create more money and get excitement from fans to be able to go out and actually get some of those other superstars on your team. So you're going to create like a couple of years of, of being good. You can't just be like the Royals and have two good seasons and then fall back into obscurity again. You have to have a couple of really good seasons. And, you know, the Astros did it. Now they might've cheated for some of it too. So that creates like a pro, you know, a question mark. Right. But I mean, for, for a lot of baseball teams, I mean, it, it's it's borderline impossible. And it's, it's kind of weird how that works. I mean, I, I definitely love baseball. I love all the rules behind it. But I do wish there was a way they created more balance. It is really tough, though, with the minor league system, of course. None of the prospects you get are really eligible, are really able to go straight into the MLB at, at the same time as compared to, like, NFL players who can just come in and immediately make impacts on their teams. Um, so it is tougher. But, I mean, at, at the same time, it's just at the end of the day, I mean, these – you know, these teams are putting themselves in their positions by themselves. You know, they're, they're not able to, um, you know, create the, the right teams to be able to win baseball games. And that, at the end of the day, that's pretty tough. Yeah. The interesting thing that the NFL does also is the NFL, because there's so few games, they negotiate their TV deals as a whole league. Like they don't in baseball, each of the 32 teams each negotiate their own television contract with like the regional TV person, their Fox sports or their NBC sports or whatever it is. So in football, because they do that, everyone shares the revenue equally, even if like the Kansas City Chiefs are obviously drawing more than the Detroit Lions in terms of viewership, they still divvy out like TV contracts equally. And so each team is at least closer together in in dollars combined with like the salary cap, which helps those teams also. But like, other than that, there's not that much that uh, there's not that much that they could change to, to set it up in such a way where there's parity and balance. Cause like baseball, baseball has fought to be uniquely designed like that where the teams at the right. top that spend a lot of money. I mean, the Padres are a good example of this. Cause like the Padres had, basically they wouldn't spend money for years and they were basically like the pirates or like these teams that like, Again, my entire childhood, they never made the playoffs. My entire memorable lifetime, the Padres have never made the playoffs. And then they get a new owner, they're top 10 in the league in spending, and all of a sudden, boom, they're in the playoffs in 2020. And they, I mean, they could have made the playoffs last year, but they they lost. And they're going to make the playoffs this year. And the unique thing about baseball is like, because there's no salary cap and because TV contracts are negotiated individually, there's basically like, and also 162 game season, there's basically a dollar amount you can spend that will guarantee a certain number of wins, which is right. interesting because that doesn't exist in like, say the NFL where like, I think the bears were one of the highest, like the bears and giants were two of the highest salary cap teams last year. Like uh, the, in baseball, the Dodgers can spend $250 million and that guarantees them a hundred wins. Like even yep. if they, even if players get hurt or even if whatever else, like the Dodgers lost their entire pitching staff in the playoffs last year and still came within two games of the world series. Cause it's just like yep. that. If you spend enough money, you have the depth to withstand all of the problems. Yeah. Uh, and, and also I think it's the fact that, you know, in, in NFL and in NBA, there is a lot more, um, you know, it's tougher because, I mean, I, I think coaching plays a lot more of a factor in those games. I definitely think coaching plays a big factor in MLB, too, because there definitely is, like, 
um, certain, you know, changes to, to lineups. There's definitely different things that can play factors in games. But, uh, you know, in the NFL and the NBA, you know, uh, mainly the NFL, I think it's a better example. The fact that, you know, a lot of those coaches are the ones calling the plays in general or telling the players what to do. They're, they're the ones pulling the strings behind the scenes. And it feels like, you know, for – for, for baseball, you know, it really is up to the individual player. You know, it's up to the pitcher themselves or the batters themselves. And that kind of shows that, hey, you know, the guys who are good are good because they are, you know, they are, are better at understanding the game than the other guys. So it's hard for the other guys to learn on the field when they don't have people telling them what to do. Uh, it's kind of hard for me to explain this, I feel like. But, yeah. um, you know, no, I, football, I, I, I football is feel- unique in that way. I think you're totally right. Yeah, a 19-year-old football player can find a lot of – or 19-year-old. A 21-year-old football player can find a lot of success in the NFL if he's with the right coach, right? But another baseball player, even if they have a great coach in, in the MLB, uh, you know, they, they might not be able to have uh, – or manager, excuse me, in the MLB. They might not be able to have as much success because a lot of it is reliant on their own physical talent themselves. Uh, and that might not be as great as what it would be for some other players. So it's tough. It really is tough because it really is all up to just the individual player at a time. Uh, compared to how the NFL is more of a, um, you know, it, it's weird because I don't want to, I don't want to say they're not a team sport, but it, football is more of a team sport than the MLB. It feels like it's really reliant mm-hmm. on just the individual success of their players in order to be good, and that's why the Dodgers are always a great football baseball team because they just get the really good players who are good hitters, good fielders. They get the Mookie Betts of the world, and all of a sudden, you know, they have insane records, right? I mean, they are always good, but in the NFL, you can have some star players in your team, right? But if you don't have good players at other positions, you're screwed always. I mean, like you have to have a lot more. It's for one, like you said, it's a limited salary cap. So you have just as much as other teams, basically. Um, and, And two, I mean, if, there's so many more positions in the NFL and so many more factors that go into it. You have good coaching staff, you have a good, good offensive line, a good defensive line, good cornerback room. You know, there's so much more that you have to have that to be good, right? That it's harder to be great at the end of the day. And I think that's what's different between, you know, baseball and, and other sports like that. Yeah. And baseball also plays 10 times as many games too. So like in football, the Colts yeah. can have like eight minutes of bad football against the Raiders and then shit the bed against the Jaguars. And all of a sudden their season is ruined when like, right. I still say they were a better team than the Bengals last year, but boom, they missed the playoffs and boom, the Bengals go to the Super Bowl. So it's like less games in baseball. You know, who's going to be good by the end of the year, 162 games you know by the end who are the best teams and who are not the best teams. It, it's pa- yeah, much, it's made painfully obvious. Yeah, much greater sample sizes, which means upsets and things like that are a lot less, uh, matter a lot less, right? And, mm-hmm. um, you know, that's, that's unfortunate. But at the end of the day, I mean, uh, it, it creates the idea that, you know, the best teams are going to be the more successful teams, obviously, right? So we really get more of an idea of who's better and who's worse, like you said. So – in a sense, that makes a lot of sense because you want the best teams in the sport to be the ones that win the championships, right? But it also loses a part of its charm, I think, in certain ways because everyone loves whenever the Jets beat the Bengals and all of a sudden. Everyone's like, whoa, Mike White and the Jets, look at them. Why? Like, I mean, everyone loves that whenever that happens. You get to celebrate and laugh over it, right? But, you know, in the MLB, whenever – whenever a, a bad team like the Royals were to be a team like the Yankees, all of a sudden you're like, you know, it's, it's 162 games. I mean, they're going to lose mm-hmm. one of those, right? Like it's bound to happen. And yeah. it really doesn't matter because the Yankees are going to be the first finished team in baseball. So it's, you know. Yeah. And baseball, the other part is like, 
the worst because they play so many games, the worst teams in the history of baseball still win one out of every three games. And the best teams in the history of baseball still win two out of every three games. So you're basically arguing like a one game margin out of every three games is the difference between every team in baseball. So yeah, the, I'll never forget the largest line in the history of baseball. Um, according to Vegas was like, the Tigers were like plus 470 against the Astros. And this is when the Astros had like Verlander and Cole and Granky, and they went to the World Series that year and they lost to the Nationals. And the Tigers got the number one pick in the draft. And the Tigers won that game with the largest line in the history of baseball. It was just like, oh, that's funny. It happens sometimes. <laughs> baseball, that it's random. But the thing that baseball does have going for them is even if the regular season has absolutely no meaning, their playoffs are absolutely insane because oh, yeah. like yeah. it's it's a coin toss like every time in the playoffs. Yeah, I mean, I think you can make a good argument that the MLB playoffs are more fun to watch than any other professional sport playoffs in general. I mean, I, I really, really enjoy maybe not the champ, maybe not the World Series compared to teams like the Super Bowl and things like that. But in terms of of getting to watch um, you know, uh, seven game series between between like the Cardinals and the and the the Dodgers or something like that. Like that's electric to go and watch because, like you said, it, it can be random, right? That, that creates more randomness. We, that's why we see a lot more upsets, and surprises in the World Series because it's only a seven game series, right? And it's only seven games that those teams play against each other. So it really depends on who's a hotter team, who is pitching well at that point, who is able to hit well at that point, right? It becomes a lot more. Um, a lot tougher to be able to actually pinpoint which team is better and which team's going to win in, in those matchups. And that would, that creates a lot of charm, like you said, in the, in the MLB playoffs now, which is why I still think, you know, I still love the MLB and I think it's, it still should be very relevant because even if the Reds aren't going to be in the playoffs, which they obviously aren't, I'm still going to really, really enjoy watching those games because I feel like it's such, it's so unpredictable to see which team wins. Yeah. Like as chaotic as football is and how much fun football is like, even last year, the Bengals only had one upset the entire playoffs. It was against the Chiefs and the Chiefs kind of gagged on themselves. And right. it was just a weird result. Like the Rams were clearly better than Tampa in that game, even though the result is going to look closer and they tried to throw up on themselves at the end. Like usually yeah. in football playoffs, the better team ends up winning just because everyone has been conditioned over the season to that point. It's weird how that works out. I'm I would have thought it would have been the other way around is that football playoffs would be more random, but because it's one game winner go home, but uh, you know, it's not. And I'm, I'm kind of surprised by that one. The other thing that to kind of put a bow on it that we talked about earlier, the other reason we're losing baseball cities is because baseball is long and boring. And yep. I, I understand, like, I totally understand when people say like, Oh, I don't like baseball because it's boring. I'm like, totally get it. I totally understand. I'm cool with like four hours and like little like 30 second breaks in between because I can do other stuff while watching a playoff baseball game. Totally get it. If other people are like, this is long and boring and I don't like it. Like totally understandable. <laughs> I get it. Baseball is kind of yeah. long and boring. It, 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 yeah. I mean, no one's putting their full attention to a game for three hours. Right. It's tough unless you're like in the stadium, obviously. Right. And then, maybe, but you know, no one's going to sit there, sit down in, on a couch and, and watch a game for three hours, 162 days of the week or days of the, <laughs> or, of the, yeah. the season. Or, or so. me who watched every single second of that magical 18 inning world series game is like seven hours and 30 minutes. And I'm like, wow, yeah. I am just exhausted. <laughs> 
that, that's that's worth it. Though. That was history, right? Like, that was a game to watch just because of how historical it was, right? I mean, I, I can at least understand that. But when you're watching the Royals Tigers play, and and it's like four hours in, and you're sitting there zero to zero, you know, like who's who's going to sit there and put themselves through that? You know, it, obviously it's harder, and it also doesn't really help that you have the NBA playoffs going at the beginning of the baseball season. You have the college football and NFL kind of start, you know, normally well, well. I guess football season kind of starts kicking into gear, I guess you could say, near the end of baseball season, right? So it's tougher for baseball because the two most important times of the year for them normally are getting overtaken by other sports that are, you know, you know, are, are more excited, more exciting at that point, right? So, I mean, them will be very much well benefits off of the fact that they are the only team that normally, they'll be the only sport that really plays during the summer, right? That really helps. But, uh, you know, at the same time, I mean, you know, when it starts to end and you start to, when it starts to fade away, uh, you know, we start to see football take a big jump. So they really don't get to end the way they kind of hope for whenever the opening day starts. I mean, everyone's still focused on, you know, the NBA playoffs and things like that. So it's kind of harder for them to garner excitement like that. So it's just tougher for them. I'll be, I think, of how long it is, of course, it's always going to be overtaken by other sports that are shorter. Uh, because teams have been waiting or fans have been waiting for 200 days for the sport to come back. They're going to be much more excited about it. So let's play this game right now. Uh, this weekend, starting on Friday, the Boston Red Sox, who are they're pretty bad this year, but like they're still the Boston Red Sox. The Boston Red Sox play at Oakland on Friday. How much do you think the cheapest tickets are currently on the Internet? The cheapest tickets available is at Oakland, you said? It's at Oakland. I might overshoot this, but I'm going to say 12 bucks. Oh, you were close. It is 11 bucks. 11. 11 bucks. The Oakland A's play at Atlanta on Tuesday. Do you know what the ticket price is? Lowest ticket price in Atlanta. Atlanta. I feel like it might be a little bit more expensive. Maybe not as much, though. I'm going to say 15. It is four dollars. <laughs> four dollars. Four dollars in Atlanta. Yeah, it's a it's a Tuesday at seven twenty game, but still, I, I'm guessing this is just someone selling it for an incredibly low price. Let's see. Looks like yeah. Oh no, you could get it for seven dollars. Also, man, you get seven dollars, four dollars, uh, six dollars. Wow. Okay. I guess yeah. Just a Tuesday night in Atlanta. Tuesday night's not the not the move for a baseball game. That is crazy. Let's see, uh, as you go further down, as if it's further out, the ticket prices are a little bit more. But uh, right. yeah, you can you can get a couple of tickets in there. But yeah, people are selling them for low prices now. I guess yeah. So you can get. I, I once uh, I got Sacramento Kings tickets. They were playing the uh, the Houston Rockets this year. I got those for like eight dollars plus fees. So it ended up being like sixteen dollars. Wow. But like it was eight dollars basic price on the tickets. Yeah, and NBA games are really expensive compared to other you know. Uh, compared to other sports too, so I, that is that is crazy. You get them that cheap because I mean, <laughs> even like Charlotte Hornets tickets here are like eighty bucks, like for like upper row tickets. You know what I mean? So yeah, that's it's impressive. It was a rare one. I think it was a I think it was a Friday night too. So that was kind of interesting. But the Rockets were the worst record in the league this year, and Sacramento hasn't made the playoffs in sixteen years. So right. you know, it's the worst. It's it's the lowest quality of professional basketball you can find. I think is the best way to put that. Also, um, what did we have? Oh, um, what's interesting about 
that in the context of baseball is baseball tickets. The stadiums are larger, but they don't make all of the tickets available. And that's an interesting thing that I only learned recently, just because they have the maximum capacity doesn't mean they make all of the tickets available to people. Right. And, and, that, and that makes sense too. I, I feel like, so, I mean, I, I mean, I, they're probably not going to sell all those. Right. So that, I, I think that would make sense anyways. Yeah. Uh, So like San Francisco is like an hour and a half from where I am. So uh, game five is on a Monday and it's after I get out of school. I'm like, well, I know tickets are too expensive, but how much would it cost if I wanted to go? It was like $900 a ticket. So I was like, uh, like, how about we just go to the watch party outside the game? It's game five of the finals. How about we just hang out around the stadium and not pay money to go to the game? Right. Yeah. Yeah, like this it's is so much more worth it. <laughs> yeah, just just hang out around the facility. Just be around the San Francisco Warriors playing in the finals. Yeah, I mean, I, I hate it. That, that worked for me. I, I mean, I, I feel like at, at a certain point, I mean, the prices just get ridiculous. It is it is so weird to see how uh, how much like a, a ticket can be compared to how little a ticket can be at the same time. Like they have they have such like a high and low points, right? Mm-hmm. Like I mean. But if it's between like nine hundred dollars for a game and then four dollars for a game, it's just that's just crazy to me how that works. I mean, I feel like I mean, obviously they had to adjust prices to let fans actually buy tickets to games because if you make Cincinnati Reds tickets fifty dollars, no one's going to go. But I mean, if if you know, I mean, for for other games to be like that expensive and for teams to still get much better attendance than than baseball teams like the A's, it's just it's just crazy to me. I, I don't get it. It's it's wild. Yeah, I find all of it very fascinating. And ticket prices are all based on demand, I guess, and people wanting to go to events because I'm sure like hockey games probably have low prices too, even though they're played in basketball arenas. Maybe not these hockey prices, the playoff games, especially the ones in New York this week. I'm sure that's going to be crazy, but probably under normal circumstances, they're cheap. Um, Speaking of which, when I went to to Vegas, I got to see the Las Vegas Golden Knights uh, stadium, right? I mean, they're, they're... their uh their, the stadium that they built and everything like that i mean compared to everything else in vegas it's so tiny right it's, it's just crazy to me because it's like it's a big like it feels like the, the the golden knights were a very hot team that were coming in as a as an expansion team in the nhl it's something that like i pay attention to a lot right like I, i'm very familiar with the golden knights and it's like that's it that's all they have is just that <laughs> building right there like that just feels like so little to me and it's crazy just it's just crazy to me to imagine that but i mean i don't know it, it, i mean it's just because everything else was so big. All the casinos in Vegas were so big. It just shocks me to see things that were that that tiny to me. And I was just like, wow, this is like smaller than Rupp Arena. You know, it's just weird. Yeah, that it is a little bit weird. But hockey, hockey is kind of a niche sport. I mean, it is a niche sport. It's not kind of a niche sport. So, you know, some people really, really like hockey. And uh, I think hockey actually this year in the playoffs did good numbers. I think they set like a first round record for viewership numbers, but <laughs> they, their viewership numbers were basically the equivalent of the XFL. And I find that kind of interesting as like, oh, that's how the intrigue in hockey starts up is uh, the hockey has that niche fan base that really loves the sport and you can find it on TV. I just haven't had time to watch hockey this year in the playoffs. Um, is there any football stuff? I guess Aaron Donald's a news story this week, but I I'm still arguing the same thing I argued after the Super Bowl, which is Aaron Donald, just retire. You have nothing left to prove. It's fine. Just just walk away. You're good. No, nothing left to play for. You're 31 years old. Walk away with your health. 
maybe $35 million a year on a contract would be nice, which I'm the Rams. I don't pay it, but like, just it's fine. You're, you're going to be a first ballot hall of famer. You're good. (laughs) He can retire today. And a lot of people in the NFL will consider him the best deep to tackle of all time. That is crazy. The fact that he's only 31 and is already considered one of the best defensive tackles of all time. It is, it's really impressive, honestly. Because, I mean, a lot of defensive tackles, you know, especially guys like Fletcher Cox, who are up there in age right now, what is he, like 35, 36? He's had to mm-hmm. go later into his career and have a, you know, a, a really extended prime just to be able to be considered a, a guy that is worthy of being mission in the Hall of Fame, right? And for Aaron Donald to do it so easily and just a – and what we consider a short career, right, is, is just insane to me. I think it's just that's just so cool. It really is impressive to see uh, how much he's accomplished in, in so little time. And, and uh, speaking of which, Stefan Tua also just retired recently. I don't know if you heard about that, but he just retired today, actually. He just announced this. So another big interior defensive lineman that was uh, really good for, for a short period of time uh, retires. I believe he only played like seven seasons with the Steelers, I think. So um, you know, not, not a big career for him. I know he suffered through some injuries and problems like that. So I do understand uh, why he would, but, um, uh, yeah, pretty, pretty short career for Tua, even though he had a lot of impact on the Steelers as well. Yeah, for sure. And I, I go differently on this than most people. Like I know people like the stat accumulation thing of like playing a long time to make the hall of fame, but I'm like, if you dominate an era of football, that's good enough for me to be in the hall of fame. So like, I argue that Quentin Nelson could retire tomorrow and be an NFL hall of famer. And he wouldn't qualify because they say you have to play six seasons to make the Hall of Fame. But I'm like, he's in four years, he's made three first team all pros in his first three years, got injured last year, was still second team all pro. So like Quentin Nelson is dominating as a guard for all of this time. And you could walk into the Hall of Fame tomorrow. And I I think people push back on that, but I think that's the part where I go out a limb on is like, why do I need people to stat accumulate in order to guarantee them hall of fame status? <laughs> yeah, the NFL hall of fame is, is so weird because you, you, you want to like include like entire careers and affect guys like guys like Frank Gore, for example, who have had uh, such a long tenure career. He's at the top of the running back lists in a lot of different categories. Right. So, mm-hmm. I mean, obviously you think that he would deserve a Hall of Fame entry as well. But then it also begs the question, that, like, what about the guys who had shorter careers but still performed really, really well at that time, right? Obviously. So that creates a problem as well. And, and thinking like, hey, is this guy good enough? To, well, he did in a short period of time, good enough to be able to make it. So even if that player might be better than Frank Gore, for example, it might not mean he necessarily makes the NFL Hall of Fame, which I feel which I feel is a little bit weird, right? Like if, if I'm doing a Hall of Fame, I'm putting the best players in whenever they were playing in that in that group right so i'm including i'm including every mvp from every season basically i'm including guys like that i mean just just great players who had great seasons and even if it was a short period of time that still has to be acknowledged because what if we had for example what if patrick mahomes just decided to retire tomorrow right like patrick mahomes is still going to be considered one of the most talented quarterbacks I, I mean, I think he is the most talented quarterback I've ever seen in the NFL, ever, right? I mean, mm-hmm. I think that that should be Hall of Fame worthy for me, even though he's had a very, very short career thus far because he's so young, obviously, right? But I still think guys like that need to be acknowledged and need to be appreciated for what they did in their short period of time if they were to be in football. So they need to be, you know, they need to be rewarded too. I mean, yeah, I think this, the short career thing only goes to the greatest of the greats of all time. Like if the greatest of the greats right. have a short career, right. then Calvin you're Johnson. good. <laughs> Yeah, Calvin Johnson's a good example there. Barry Sanders, I mean, they're, they're Detroit Lions, but like those two are, are the case in point there. 
they say six years to get to the Hall of Fame. Like if you have to play that, that makes it so basically every running back that has ever played now has no chance of making the Hall of Fame because running back careers burn out so quickly that we have to take account for what the peak of that career was. And like football is just a sport that destroys the body so quickly that like it's not the same as other sports where like you can actually have a 15 plus year career and at the end not be like just a shell of yourself. It's just physically impossible in football because of the the skill level that we're watching. But yeah, I mean, the, the point that people point to all the time is like Dan Marino made the Hall of Fame just based on the first five years of his career. And then the last 10 years, he was like an above, he was Philip Rivers for the next 10 years of his career. But that's, that's the same argument of like, at least you played those years. And at least we got to indoctrinate ourselves with you, especially at positions that people don't understand. Like Quentin Nelson is, is a unique one. Cause like, we don't have a great way to judge it other than like, like people who really know football have a good way to judge it. But like when talking about Quentin Nelson, we're just like, well, I guess we look at all pros and pro bowls and you know, did their team make no, a deep run in the playoffs? <laughs> there's no stats to tell his whole story, right? You can't just look mm-hmm. up something on paper and say, like, hey, this guy had a successful career. You have to actually go out and watch him to be able to understand how good of a player he was. Yeah, I think the only stat close to that is, like, pressures allowed or, like, sacks allowed. Like, that's the the basic thing people point to with offensive linemen when sacks are... are I, I've learned this now by trying to follow football over the pandemic. Sacks are a quarterback stat. In the modern NFL, mm-hmm. if you take sacks, that's on the quarterback more than it is the offensive line to a certain point because mm-hmm. it's so easy to get rid of the ball now that if, you, if you're if you taking an exorbitantly large amount of sacks, it's because you're holding the ball a little bit too long and like everyone's kind of yep. in the middle in terms of like time and pressure and stuff like that. But like a good offensive line makes a huge difference because it buys you like two seconds. But even still, like that's just specifically the Quentin Nelson one that I've argued for years. Like Quentin Nelson, it should be a Hall of Famer tomorrow if he retires. And I guess he's just going to have to play five more years in order to guarantee that he's going to make the hall of fame or whatever it ends up being. Cause football players just can't last that long. The bodies break down much faster than other sports. I'm glad you mentioned the running backs because I was talking to some friends about this recently. I mean, unless they're a part of a committee, right? It feels like it is so rare for a running back to get a second contract nowadays. You have to be amazing, right? You'd be really, really good. If you're not, if you're not an Alvin Kamara or Dalvin Cook, you're not going to be getting a second contract in the NFL if you are a workhorse for a team, which is kind of crazy to think, right? Because a lot of t- a lot of players end up becoming a part of committees or end up falling into obscurity or end up becoming backups. You know, like your Melvin Gordon's, right? Like, I mean, Melvin Gordon uh, is one of the examples of a guy that maybe is one of the more successful stories in, when it comes to uh, having a longer tenure career, even though he has really fallen off after his original first five seasons in the NFL. So it is kind of crazy to like look back on it and and, and see like how little um, running backs are, are are playing now and how much harder it's going to be for running backs to make the the Hall of Fame like you said because it's so hard for running backs to be consistently good without getting hurt for more than four seasons, right? I mean, it's just super, super rare for any running back. We're, we're seeing injuries with Derrick Henry, Dalvin Cook, Joe Mixon. All these guys have gone through injuries and problems. Christian McCaffrey, of course. Uh, I mean, you know, Alvin Kamara has been one of the most healthiest running backs in the league right now, but even then he's still not been completely healthy as a running back either. So it's just so much, there's so much, um, you know, health problems and inconsistencies of running backs being able to go out there and play, especially consistently for six plus seasons. It's just, 
you know, it's a shame that we're going to see some of these running backs who might deserve a, a spot in the, in the Hall of Fame, but maybe they won't be able to get one because of the amount of injuries they suffer or because they aren't going to be able to get another contract when they turn 27 or 28 years old. It's going to be so much tougher for them because their bodies are already wearing out because of how much they're getting hit. Yeah, and I think it's interesting because the running back position specifically, people are coming around on the fact that like, oh, you get a certain number of carries and then your body is like just breaking down because it's a really brutal position to play. And like, obviously, Adrian Peterson is going to make the Hall of Fame and obviously Frank Gore is going to make the Hall of Fame and LaShawn McCoy is probably going to make the Hall of Fame because he made the all-decade team for the 2010s and like pretty much everyone who makes the all-decade team gets into the Hall of Fame. But like... For people who had shorter careers, those are the ones that I think of of the peak of the position. Like the, the greatest running back I've ever seen is Todd Gurley during those first two seasons with the Rams. Like it was just incredible football. And he's got no chance of making the Hall of Fame when I'd argue that it, I wouldn't argue Todd Gurley makes the Hall of Fame, but like I'd argue that that is the pinnacle of the position, even if he's not going to get that Hall of Fame consideration. And that's okay. It's just, it's different because, like you said, the Camaras, the Cooks, the Chubbs, the very goods don't get the same type of like, even if there's, even if we're not talking about Hall of Fame, like even just the sign of like getting a new contract and like getting a big contract, there's not even that level of success for, for the running backs as they age into their 20s. Like, we think of Christian McCaffrey as broken down guy now. He's only 25 years old. Yep. Yep. Christian, Christian McCaffrey's younger than Quentin Nelson. <laughs> he is, he's not, you know, he's almost the same age as Joe Burrow. Almost. <laughs> yeah. He's like a year older than Joe Burrow. Who's the funny one there? I think he's like the, I think he's only like two years younger than Austin Hooper. (laughs) Austin Hooper's been around for like ever. It feels like. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's just crazy how, um, you know, how much different positions age, right? Cause you know, you, you look at Russell Wilson or, or Aaron Rodgers or something like that, who's in their upper thirties now. And you're like, you know what? They still have several years left in them. Like I, I don't see them retiring in the next two or three years. Right. I just don't. Right. And then you look <laughs> at guys like Christian McCaffrey and you're like, this guy's 25 years old. Right. But he could be retiring in the next couple of years and it would not shock me one bit. So it's crazy how much different players age, depending on the position they play. It changes so many aspects of the game. Um, and, and it sucks for running backs. I mean, that's why I hate that running backs don't get um, paid as much, even though I'm a believer, if you want a winning football team, you should not pay a running back because obviously it's too much risk involved in that. So it, it's, it's just so tough for the running back position and the players who play running back. It's unfair for them, but they're the ones taking the brutal amount of hits. I think at this point, the NFL should be heading in more of a running back by committee kind of idea. Where it's multiple running backs, three or you know, two or three guys that you can rely on to split snaps and play each game, because that's going to allow a lot of these players to have longer, more tenured careers. And I think that's why teams like the Patriots and the 49ers have done so so well in the running back game the last couple of years, because they've been able to have so many different running backs who could stay fresh and healthy and be able to play and perform well in different parts of the game. So I, I mean, I'm a big believer that you know this, this is it should slowly start to head towards more of a running back by committee sort of league, and we should start seeing maybe teams make more of an effort to be able to give handoffs to backups and other guys to be able to give the starters and great players more time to be able to rest and recuperate from their from their hits they're taking. You know what I think is kind of messed up is that the strategy that I think is starting to work out because like running back by committee works only if you have a really strong offense built around and your offense is predicated on the passing game. 
But like, if I'm not going to argue the Titans should go to like a heavy passing game, like you use who you have and you pay Derrick Henry, whatever amount you want to pay. Cause he's just that special. I think the messed up strategy now is you draft running backs and burn the holy hell out of them for three seasons. That seems to be the strategy is like, let's just use this running back into the ground for three seasons and then to hell with whatever's left after that. For his rookie contract, right? Yeah. Yeah. For his entirety of his rookie contract, basically just use, use the running back up as much as possible. And the moment he hits free agency, goodbye, let's get another one. Right. You know, I that's the moment you get one in the third round each year and you're going to use them up until he, until he's useless. Right. And then essentially just let him cut him off. And, you know, maybe, maybe that's, you know, it's a, I feel like it's a very unethical thing to do in terms of yeah. the sport. Right. But of course, uh, in terms of, if you want to win football games, that makes the most sense. Right. I mean, that's, that's probably what makes the most sense for, for, uh, for teams to do if they want to keep success. Uh, around and I, I really don't know any teams that in specific do that. I can't think of any off the top of my head, but I can see um, one I, who's doing it currently. But you know, time will tell on that one. And it's uh, it's the Colts. Colts, <laughs> Colts Jonathan Taylor. Colts are kind of doing it as we speak, but at the same time, like it's not a great strategy. It's a great strategy when you hit on the good running backs. Like if you draft Jonathan Taylor, that's a big old victory for you. But like. If you get four years of Jonathan Taylor, the odds are pretty slim that you're going to be able to draft another Jonathan Taylor in four years. Like the odds are just really difficult on being able to hit the running back every single time. So like the problem is sometimes you're not going to be able to find a a really good running back and then you'll be the Cardinals and you're stuck with James Conner or you'll be the, I don't know, the who's a team that doesn't have a great running back, but like, it's fine. Uh, Houston Texans, Marlon Mack. (laughs) <laughs> I forgot about Marlon Mack. Yeah, Marlon Mack went for a thousand yards two seasons on the Colts, and they were finally like, damn it, we're gonna try and draft a running back. <laughs> like we we can't yep. keep doing this with Marlon Mack every year. <laughs> but yeah. I who's a, I'm trying to think. I guess the Falcons are an example of it. Like the Falcons with Cordero Patterson are just like it's not great, but it's like we can pay $4 million and it's fine as a running back position. And he's more of a receiver too. I mean, he, he played a lot of receiver as well. So he's not really even a pure running back, right? He's going to like have a running back to me. Yeah. I, who else is in this camp? I mean, in terms of like burning him up, I guess they're about to burn up Najee Harris with the, with the Steelers. Yeah, but he, like, he'll get burnt. Yeah. Yeah, who's it? I guess Buffalo is a good example. Buffalo just is like yeah. they they just they don't have a good. They might have the worst running back room in the NFL, but they just like they they just keep trying to take stabs in the third and fourth round, and it like doesn't work. Now the good news for them is that their their RB one is Josh Allen. They've just learned that we can't use him in the regular season because we're going to destroy his body. Only like break glass in case of emergency, like in the the game against the Chiefs where he had like 13 rushes for 60 yards or whatever it was. But like they don't they just keep trying to stab running backs and it doesn't work because there's just not enough good ones to go around. Yeah, no. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's 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 tough for uh, for different teams like that to like, end up working out. I think Jonathan Taylor could get an extra contract with the way he's been playing. But at the same time, I mean, I don't know with how many hits he's taking, you know, how many injuries he's going to end up facing, right? We don't really know. Yeah. So things can definitely change in the next couple of years. But what we've seen so far, he's been one of the better running backs we've, we've seen in the last couple of years. So uh, for all we know, maybe he could be a long-term running back that can hopefully last a, a second contract. We'll have to see, obviously, on that. So, I mean, it it really is like it's it's tough because, you know, 
you want to do right by the player and let him have a full career and be able to get make a lot of money elsewhere and things like that. But at the same time, you know, you're focused on your football team and you know that it's a pass-heavy league at this point, right? The only reason why you want to use a running back is to create balance in your roster. And a lot of times this guy is taking terrible hits and getting hit really hard just to give you guys three or four yards, which feels completely pointless, but you're just using that to help your team be able to create more of a passing attack and be able to ha- create a play action or, or different or different plays, you know, to be able to create defenses to start guessing. So it just feels like the running backs um, nowadays are, are getting so few and far in between in, in terms of like actually mattering. Cause you, we see teams with the 49ers, you know, for example, who are going out and drafting two running backs per get, per draft, right. You know, we saw them the previous year, get Trey Sermon and Elijah Mitchell turn around, get another running back in the third round this year and Tyron Davis price from LSU. So they get three, they drafted three running backs and all of them are going to have a chance to be able to start play meaningful snaps in this team next year, because that's just how they're built. That's just how they are. And even then they still have Jeff Wilson. They still have a bunch of other running backs that are still already on the roster on top of that this is just a team that is going to take a running back burn him into the ground in three or four games move on to the next guy do the exact same thing so if you're a team like the 49ers who maybe aren't you know i don't even know if we can consider elijah mitchell a great running back i definitely liked him at the, at whenever he was drafted but did i think he'd ever be considered a top 15 running back no i think it's more of a, a factor of hey the 49ers are 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 a team that is going to be creating a lot of different uh, – they have a great offensive line for one, and they're going to be able to have an offense that's going to create a lot of space for running backs to be able to make plays in the open field. As long as you've got like, a break tackles like Elijah Mitchell can, you're going to find success in that, right? So, um, you know, they're, they're starting to find success in just going in the fourth, fifth, sixth round and just drafting a running back and using him up in two seasons, and all of a sudden he's gone. Like, yeah, out, out, I, completely obscure. The thing I say with Elijah Mitchell is like, I've seen seven of you in the past three years. I know, I know what your game is at this point, (laughs) but I I guess I even like, even for the 49ers and like they're creative with the schemes and the running backs. Like I still think Debo Samuel was their number one running back by the end of the season. And that's really weird that they went to that. They just went to who is the most skilled player. Like the, the most skilled player will be the one who touches the ball more. And I think that's kind of the thing we're moving towards in the NFL is just, you either haves or you have nots. And if you have a skill player, just let them touch the ball as much as they can. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's basically how it is now. And it, it sucked that it's that way. But uh, I mean, I guess that's just how it works nowadays in the NFL. So um, I am, I am fascinated by the running back position and to see like how many players are, because I genuinely think like there's a lot of there, there, there are about, I think 40, six maybe even 50 starting caliber running backs in the nfl right now that's a big mm. number i think i mean there's the most teams have two guys i could see starting you know you have your you have alexander madison to dalvin cook right you have your mark ingram to your alvin Kamara, right i mean there's a bunch of different guys there that i think are starting caliber players maybe even a couple on a few teams Ramondre stevenson damian harris those guys are starting caliber players i think on on the patriots team i mean it really is a fact now that there are so many solid players that at this point, you know, you're guaranteed to have one or two. So burn one to the ground, switch up, find another one, do the exact same thing, go over and over again. You're going you're to find a repeated cycle and you're not paying these guys anything because they're rookies basically. Right. So it's tougher for, and it's easy for these teams to just say, hey, say, Hey, you know, I'm going to use up this running back and turn around and just get another one. It's going to be the exact same type of guy. But if they're all interchangeable, does that mean that like 90% of them aren't game changing? 
like they aren't actually making an impact on like wins and losses. They're just interchangeable pieces at that point. Cause like the solution to running backs don't get paid is to just increase the value of their rookie contracts relative to the rest of the league. But like, does that mean that in the system that currently exists, they're all interchange or at least 95% of them are interchangeable. Cause if there's 50 guys who could be starting, that means it, it doesn't really matter who is starting because like right. we wouldn't argue there's 50 wide receivers that could be wide receiver ones. We're not arguing that there's yeah. like 50 defensive tackles that could be the the lead man on the interior for your team. So does that mean that they're all interchangeable if there's like 50 of them that could be starting for an actual good team? Yeah. I mean, so I would say there's about, I would think on the top of my head, maybe eight, nine, 10 running backs in the NFL who are our running backs are going to decide games for you right now. Nick Chubb is going to win you a football game. You know, Derrick Henry is going to win you a football game. Jonathan Taylor. Even, no. even Nick Chubb. I know we've talked about Chubb before, but his body is breaking, man. Like the Browns had him on like a snap count last year. Like his, yeah. his body is breaking down a little bit. It, it is. It is. But as of right now, I think he is a, t- a guy that's going to decide you some games. I, you know, I would even say as a Bengals fan, as a Bengals fan, I don't know if Joe Mixon is a, is a running back that is going to win or lose you a football game. Now, he has had some great games and has gotten some touchdowns <laughs> and things like that in the past, of course. But if you gave the Bengals a an example, who's a, a lesser running back that's in the league right now? A Sony Michelle. If you gave the Bengals a Sony Michelle, how much different are their wins and losses going to be? I really don't know if any of them are going to be different, right? I, I and their still offense gonna is going to look a little different, but the, the results might be the same, even if the process is different. They would just play right. differently. Right. So, I mean, that, that, that's that's the most extreme example because I think Joe Mixon's the top of that list and Sonny Michelle's play at the bottom, right? But if you're, if you're giving me like Damian Harris and Devin Singletary and switching teams, how much different is those teams going to look than what they would have if they hadn't switched before? And you compare that to maybe a... Uh, say, for example, if you switch an Allen Robinson and a Keenan Allen with each other, those teams look a lot different if they are switched into different teams because they're very different mm-hmm. receivers for one. And also, I think they're very, very different in terms of reliability. Of course, running back wide quarterbacks have to develop, you know, uh, you know, uh, targets with one, one another. Um, Keenan Allen and Allen Robinson are considered both top 50 wide receivers, right? But Keenan Allen is definitely going to be a lot more effective by a wide receiver based on what we saw last year than Allen Robinson. So that creates a big you know, question mark on whether or not you can rely on Allen Robinson or not. So it's just – it's really tough because running backs are the only position that I think is like this, right? But the difference between the 38th-ranked running back and the 23rd-ranked running back is so tiny. There is not a difference between those guys at all, in my opinion, right? It's, it's so close. Like – so I saw recently someone said AJ Dillon was like a borderline, like not even top thirty running back right now. But I could see AJ Dillon playing on a on a roster, being a starting running back, being a top ten rusher in the NFL right now, and that would not shock mm-hmm. me one bit. I was just telling someone recently, I think AJ Dillon could be a better running back than Aaron Jones already, and he had more rushing yards than him already. We consider mm-hmm. Aaron Jones a top ten running back in the league right now. He's a borderline top ten running back in the league, and if AJ Dillon is considered thirty at this point. And he's getting more rushing yards per game than than Aaron Jones is. That is a huge difference, a huge or a very small difference, excuse me, between the tenth ranked player and the thirtieth ranked player. That is a very very tiny difference because I think you make a good argument that if you give AJ Dillon the workload that Aaron Jones is getting, he is getting the exact same results. Yeah, I, I think you could name at least like ten teams that AJ Dillon would be the starter right now on because I can go off the top of my head: Arizona with James Conner. 
uh, San Francisco, the Rams, uh, not the Seahawks. Um, not the him Seahawks? or Swift. Yeah, Seahawks drafted Kenneth Walker, so I'll give them the I'll give him the plus okay. on that one. Oh, all right. Um, the Lions, Swift versus Dylan. Uh, ah, I don't know. But anyways, uh, Chicago. Yeah, Chicago. Uh, Chicago is Montgomery. We'll say maybe there. Uh, Atlanta. Uh, Atlanta for sure. Tampa. Uh, Fournette versus him, pretty similar. Uh, Eagles definitely starting on the Eagles, definitely starting on Miami. Uh, the Jets, the Texans. So, yeah, like AJ Dillon is definitely a really good running back in that respect, but like they're they're kind of interchangeable. I also love that you said Joe Mixon, you weren't sure if he was one of those eight to ten guys, which means that you're basically saying Joe Mixon is the Derek Carr of running backs. You're not sure if it impacts winning or not. <laughs> Listen, this is I am I am a I have been my Bengals fans, I have been deemed a Joe Mixon hater. I love Joe Mixon. I have always loved Joe Mixon. I, he's been one of my favorite players for the longest time. I just think he's a hilarious dude. He's really, really fun to watch. He's a great player. I love to watch him. But if you if you gave me A.J. Dillon and his contract, I, I would take that over Joe Mixon and his contract right now on the Bengals. I would. I would take A.J. Dillon and the contract he has right now over Joe Mixon and his $13, $14 million he's making per year right now with Cincinnati because mm-hmm. it is getting a player that is, I would say, Barely worse than Joe Mixon, and I mean barely. I really, really, I watched AJ Dillon play live in Cincinnati. Right, I didn't see much of a difference between him and Joe Mixon at all. They felt very evenly talented to me. I think you know, obviously, obviously, it's a very different scheme in Green Bay. Obviously, offensive line plays a big difference. You know, Joe Mixon's a better receiving target than AJ Dillon, so there are definitely different aspects to this game and to the, to the comparisons, right? But I mean. Yeah, the Bengals would be saving $10 million if they had an A.J. Dillon at running back over a Joe Mixon right now. You know, mm-hmm. And that $2 million for that little bit of difference at running back play is so worth it for a lot of different teams at this point, right? So at this point, it's always just – I'm always thinking like, you know, is, is paying Joe Mixon really worth it at all? And the more I think about it, it really isn't. This, this team is not better or worse without him. They just We had this debate two years ago, remember, back. when he actually got the extension. We were talking about – you know, like if you were okay with it, cause it wasn't in like the 16 million range that Camara had just gotten, but you were like, right. I mean, I, I would have been fine if he had left and they would have like replaced him somewhere else. Like it wouldn't have been devastating if we'd lost him. I think they paid him what, like yeah. 13 million a year or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was like a 13 and a half or something like that. Yeah. Uh, I mean, so like, of course I love Joe Mixon. I was happy he's back. I think, you know, in terms of comparing it to other running back prices, it made sense, right? Because I think, you know, Kamara making $16 million is a lot. I think Joe Mixon is, uh, you know, if Kamara is a top five running back, Joe Mixon is probably seven or eight, right? So it's about three or four spots difference turning to running back value. So two and a half million less for a, a running back that is just a couple of spots ahead of you, I think is very worth it, right? So comparing it to the other running back market, it makes a lot of sense. But also comparing about the idea that, hey, what if we just drafted a rookie in round two? And then all of a sudden had an extra $13 million to go out inside a good offensive lineman, right? That would be a huge difference in my eyes. And that's why I was so iffy on it because I love Joe Mixon. And I think in terms of running back value, it makes sense. But there was always a better – I think there's a better option out there. And there, that's why I, I 
I kind of mentioned that. I'm happy to have him back. I think in terms of value for running backs, it makes sense. I'm glad he's making this money because he deserves it. But is this team getting better? No. I mean, you know, it's just, you're just paying this guy more money. Yeah, because it, it means someone else is going to – because you're going to have to cut costs somewhere because what they're paying right. for is a guaranteed RB1 at $13 million a year. So you'll cut costs somewhere else. Yep. Yes. I mean, and, the, 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 team, the, the team basically got worse after that extension, basically. And Joe Mixon's a great player, and I hate to say that, but they basically got worse because Joe yeah. Mixon's impact has not, has not been worth the $13 million we would have lost if we didn't resign him. Yeah, you're basically you're you're paying 13 million a year for a guaranteed 1300 rushing yards. It's basically what it is. And then he got hurt in 2020 of course, but like last year he had 1200 rushing yards and 13 touchdowns. You got equal value for what you're paying for. Which yep. you know, yep. we're we're arguing that like if running backs are interchangeable, you could have done that with any of the 50 running backs that were available in the NFL if you're getting equal value for what you're paying. Which there's no e- accurate way to do it. It's just a guess there, but like that's kind of what you're arguing, I'm guessing. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's just at this point, unless it's a Derrick Henry or unless it's an Alvin Kamara or a healthy Christian McCaffrey, I mean, there's not many players in the league that is going to win or lose you a football game based off their play. You know, we, we, we I mean, I, 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 used, I just saw this recently. I saw the Madden rating, ratings come out, and I hate to go back to the original two points I was making earlier, but Aaron Jones is a 90, A.J. Dillon is a 79, those those guys in real life are are not eleven rating points apart from each other at all. It is to me, it is like one point, maybe two points apart, and that's how thirty of those top fifty running backs are. They are all eighty fours and eighty fives in terms of Madden ratings. For the people who who do better off of rating systems, right? Uh, I want to create my own ratings for players so I can like make like a good idea of how I see each player as. Uh, most of these running backs that I'm talking about right now are all grouped into within three points of each other in terms of rating <laughs> systems, in my opinion. That's just how it is. And yeah. some, are, some are making 13 million, some are making 6 million, some of them are making a rookie contract numbers, right? And so mm-hmm. obviously, I would want the cheaper ones who aren't much worse than these other guys because it's saving you so much more money and you can get so much more impact players out of their position. Let's let me go back to the salary cap points for running backs. I also have something that I haven't revealed yet, but I did this activity a little while ago, which is a stereotypical middle of June football segment, which is my tiers of wide receivers. And I have that available whenever we want it as well. I, I made the full list, but I want to go back and see the 2021 values. Cause remember that stat we used to have that like for three years, the top 10 highest paid running backs, like only two made the playoffs and it was 2018 Todd Gurley and 2020 Derrick Henry and everyone else missed the playoffs with a top 10 highest paid running back. I actually haven't checked to see how this number updated from last year. So let's see if the, I'm guessing it changed a little bit, but let's see how the numbers changed last year in the playoffs. So it was, okay, boom. Uh, wait, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Oh, interesting. Okay. So out of the top 10 highest paid running backs last year, how many of them do you think their team made the playoffs? Uh, um, just going through the top of my head, right? I, um, Derek Henry, Joe Mixon. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if Aaron Jones is top 10 in pay. 
Yeah, he is. It's based. Jones, oh, sorry. It's based on salary cap number. So the, those things can get t- twisted a little bit based on contract signing. Oh, it's not, based on salary year. cap numbers for last year. Okay. Oh, okay. Interesting. Um, um, I'm just going to go with the wild guess and say four. It is three. Three. Okay. Three. Which again, the past three years, there was only two in the last three years combined. Right. Right. But there were three last year. It was yeah. Derrick Henry, obviously number one. It was Joe Mixon at four. Yep. And the last one was number six, which was Ezekiel Elliott. Elliott. All right. Yep. And the other Makes ones sense. were number two, Saquon, missed playoffs. Three, Melvin Gordon, missed playoffs. Uh, five, McCaffrey, missed playoffs. Seven, Eckler, missed playoffs. Eight, Dalvin Cook. Nine, Kareem Hunt. Ten, uh, Alvin Kamara. Yep. 